I don't know what's real. I don't know what's not real. Limited Capacity is a collection of six darkly amusing stories about the mysterious ways we interact with the internet and with each other. There's something going on with him. It's like an act. I don't trust him. What? You're staring at me like I should say something, but I don't really know what to do here. That's the whole name of the game. Don't talk about how the town isn't real. Do you understand? Limited Capacity. Available now on CBC Listen or wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. The next chapter. Basically like an 80s sci-fi movie on the page. I just cried for days. (laughs) Days! You might encounter someone on the street and in just an instant you get a story. The next chapter. On CBC Radio 1. And Sirius XM. Kinesia Lubrin grew up in St. Lucia, loving language, music, and story. But as she got older, she came to understand the complications of colonialism and racism inherent in English and Caribbean Creole, her two languages. In her poetry, and now in her debut fiction, Code Noir, Kinesia brilliantly dissects politics and history with her dazzling use of language. Kinesia is a literary star, and in a half an hour, she will speak with our contributor, Ryan B. Patrick, about Code Noir. To close the program today, I'll talk with our in-house visual whiz, Ashley July. He's a producer with CBC Books who's always loved the blend of pictures and words in graphic novels and comics. And he has some recommendations later today. But first, our last but far from least Canada Reads matchup conversation. In a couple of minutes, the actor Kudakwashe Rotendo will be here with Taya Mutanji. Kudakwashe is defending Taya's book, Shut Up, Your Pretty, in the Canada Reads debates next month. I'm Ali Hassan. Welcome to the next chapter. My next two guests are meeting each other for the first time today. Kudakwashi Rotendo is an actor. She was named a Toronto International Film Festival Rising Star in 2023. And Tea Motonji is the author of the award-winning short story collection, Shut Up, You're Pretty. Together, they'll be an incredible force at this year's Canada Reads, where Kudakwashi is defending Shut Up, You're Pretty. It's a collection of loosely connected fictional short stories that follow a teenage girl as she grows into a woman. The stories explore her desire to be seen, her need for love, and her search for belonging. And they illustrate how much the outside world can shape a person's inner life. Kudakwashi, Taya, hello to you both. Hello. <laughs> okay, Taya, let me start with you. Yes. Shut Up, You're Pretty was published in 2019. Was, this yeah. was your debut. It made best of lists. It won awards the 2020 Trillium Book Award and the Edmund White Award for Debut Fiction. And now it is being defended on Canada Reads 2024 by Kudukwashe. Uh How did you feel when you heard that news? I actually cried a lot. <laughs> I was pretty surprised. Um, you know, I, it's not that I forgot about this book. It's that after a certain time, you kind of have to force yourself to move on and to like maybe start working on something else. Your baby has to grow up? My baby had to grow up. So for, I want to say, the few months prior to hearing about uh, Canada Reads, I really was, I had entered a different world. Um, And then to be called back into this one felt really emotional because I really love my book. I, I really love what it's done for my life. And the process of writing it was so special. So getting the opportunity to just pick it up again was really big for me. I just cried. 
For days. <laughs> days? Even. For days. Kudakwasha, you're an avid reader. You I read am. widely dozens of books a year. How did this book, Shut Up, You're Pretty, affect you? Um, immediately. Uh, but because of the prose, um, Taya is so talented. And I knew pretty early on it was either in the first short story, um, Tits for Sigs, or in the one preceding that. I read it and I was like, ooh, I was like, I think... I think this is the one. Hmm. Um, and because you know, especially once you start reading a lot, you know what you're drawn to and the kind of prose you like, the kind of stories you like, the kind of characters you like. And also you get really good at identifying what you think is craft. And reading Taya's work, I was like, this is craft, but this is also personal to me. I was like, I really connect with this story and it's written so beautifully. Hmm. I was like, I, I don't know what other book I would want to champion. And Taya, it is a collection of uh, short stories. They are linked, uh, all of them except one. Are, are from the point of view of one character, is our pr- protagonist, Loli. Why did you feel like short stories were the best way to tell Loli's story? Two reasons. The first one, I was practicing how to write in a way that felt really accessible. And I struggled for the, my first couple years when I became a reader. I struggled with novels. They felt too long, and I didn't have the chance to like go into a novel and then come out and feel sort of um, cohesive when I went, I re-entered it. So I really kept thinking about what kind of literature do I like and what kind of books I like to read. So short story felt like the obvious choice for me, really because I needed to write something that I would personally also read. Uh, But secondly, when I started considering a career in publishing and when the opportunity to perhaps publish something came up, I was really cautious of the lack of representation of black characters, and I felt a little bit scared to write something that was sort of uh, considered like a cookie cutter, this is for all black women, or this is the experience of all black women. Mm -hmm. And so the concept of a short story gives me the possibility of individualism, and my goal was sort of to create this illusion that Loli is a different black person, a black woman in every story. So that's in my head, that's how I worked. Um, I really wanted to create something that felt contained, but also uh, individualized. Kudakwasha, you mentioned that you really connected with the stories. I was going to ask you if you've ever met somebody uh, who was like the character Loli in, in Canadian fiction. Definitely not in fiction that I've read. And I think, if anything, what really connected with me is that they're just different aspects of Loli that I either see reflected in myself or reflected in the people around me. For me, a lot of it was how people reacted to Loli's blackness, especially in her black womanhood. So like that was something that I connected with so intimately. And then just small different experiences. Like Taya said, it's not universalizing any experience. And I think that's what the benefit of the short stories is. But then you read it and then here you, you relate to that. Maybe not that one, but that one is something you've lived through. And that's kind of what speaks to me and to the people I told about the book. Okay, well, let's talk a little bit more about Loli. She's a, a young black teen who emigrated to Canada as a, as a child with her family from Congo, as you did yourself, Taya. Um, she's a multifaceted character, right? Is it autobiographical in some ex- for, to, to some extent? Where did you draw your inspiration to create Loli? Loli as a person definitely comes from my own nuances, but Loli's story, as in her experiences, are definitely more research, if I'm being honest. Mm -hmm. That's where I sort of allowed myself to be very creative. But I shaped someone that looked like me and that felt like me. And she also represents a part of myself that is not expressed openly. I am a very bubbly person when you meet me when I enter a room. Mm -hmm. But for some reason, whenever I sit down to write, everything gets very, very dark. And Loli 
sort of takes that at the forefront where she might have a bit of a stronger exterior that I do, but then her insides are a little bit more soft. She's tender when you get to know her internally, and I'm sort of the reverse of that. So mm. Loli was in many ways a not necessarily a reflection of who I perceive myself to be, but it's sort of a part of me, if that makes more sense. Sure. So she is inspired by by me, and really it's because I grew up reading a lot of stories of young girls growing up and getting drunk and having sex and getting heartbroken. And they were just never black, and they were never from Africa, and they were certainly not Congolese. They were not refugees. And I purposely put myself in the kind of stories I just wished I had read when I was growing up. Mm-hmm. And I think you mentioned, you know, the writing is dark, but you're more gregarious in person. And I've met mm-hmm. you before at a literary <laughs> festival, and I think that's the better one rather than dark in person and then, you know, gregarious and bubbly in your writing. So I think people can be uh, <laughs> grateful for that. Now, Loli lives in this Galloway neighborhood in, in Scarborough. Taya, in what ways does that place and, and growing up in that community shape Loli's identity? Yeah, that was really, for me, the big point of when I started working on this story collection. I was an undergrad at University of Toronto in Scarborough, and I was very excited that I grew up in Galloway because it was part of, when I think of my history, that was sort of the most exciting part. It was tender, it was fun, it was freeing. But whenever I would tell someone that, the reaction was always, Galloway's a terrible place, Galloway's a bad place, and people suddenly looked at me a little bit differently, or the conversation would steer in a way that felt very strange to me because it didn't match my own experience of that place. And so when I decided how Loli was going to be presented, I realized that Galloway was the perfect place to place her because the way Galloway is spoken about and the way Galloway feels, both in the book and to me, is also exactly how Loli is. Loli is sort of seen differently than how she perceives herself, and she's understood in a way that doesn't make sense. And I feel the same way about Galloway, uh, very much they uh, mirror each other in that way. Mm. Um, so that was just really fun. I, I wanted her to belong to a place that felt like who she was. Kudukwanshe, do you think that there are places from our, uh, our, our childhood or our pasts that, uh, that influence us and, and, and form who we are? A hundred percent. I think it is our, exactly our past that informs who we become in the future, or at least it helps us negotiate who we become in the future. Huge aspects of who I am are based on the environment I grew up in, and it's neither good nor bad. It's just a fact. Like, you grew up in this environment, and your experiences, the culture, the traditions, the people, the expectations, they shape you. And you can pick what you carry and what you let go of, but I think there's an undeniable connection to the environment and the places you grew up in. Sure. Who she grows up with also plays a role. One of the first meaningful bonds that Loli has is is the one she nurtures with a, a neighborhood girl. Um, what draws those two girls together? I think in a really bizarre way, Loli is secretly who Jolie wishes she was, and Jolie is secretly who Loli wishes she was. So they're drawn by each other because they bring parts of each other out that the other one is sort of repressing. Loli learns how to be tender, really, through meeting Jolie. And Jolie learns how to be considerate. It didn't last. But (laughs) we do see the shift in her personality where she actually starts to desire things for herself. And she wasn't someone that grew up with that sort of a permission. Uh, So they they really bring something out of each other that I thought was beautiful. And in the previous draft of the book, it was entirely about these two girls and them growing up. But uh, Jolie was just she just kept being too big of a presence. So I Mm. had to just send her away. (laughs) Uh, But that's I played around with those characters for a very long time and they're still so big in my head. So 
I don't know that it's the end for them necessarily. Mm. Oh, that's interesting. Uh, in one passage, Loli describes Jolie as Jolie, long blonde hair, defined nose, blue in her eyes, roses in each cheek. And Loli, on the other hand, feels kind of plain in comparison anyway. So Kudukwashi, I want to ask you about this this notion of desirability and beauty. How do they inform um, Loli's journey towards womanhood? Yeah, I think early on we see Jolie and Loli kind of find out that this desirability is a sort of currency in the world that they inhabit. In the first book, they find they're able to get what they want, in this case cigarettes, by showing someone their tits. Um, and, you know, as the book progresses, um, this idea of desirability becomes this huge theme, especially in how the world treats them. When you're seeing the description of Loli in contrast to Jolie, um, as you read the later sections of the book, you see that constantly people are pitting her blackhood as almost something against her desirability. And later on, you know, it's stressed in the titular um, short story, Shut Up, You're Pretty, that, you know, things wouldn't happen to Loli because she's pretty. So it, it's a huge theme of this book, this idea of mm. desirability, this idea of your beauty as a woman being your currency and how you navigate the world. And then for Loli, though, she has the unique experience of always having it mediated with her being black. And, you know, that's something she constantly pushes through a lot of the times, like, especially with her partners. They'll be like, oh, you're so beautiful. Oh, but like, oh, I never saw myself with a black woman or comments like that. And you see it constantly pitted mm-hmm. against yourself in a way that I thought was very realistic because I've experienced that in my life. But also I feel like in a greater theme, you know, for women, for a lot of the ways that we have to navigate the world, it's based on our desirability or lack thereof. And Jonas articulates this in the titular chapter, Shut Up, You're Pretty. He's talking about a waitress and saying that people would not have treated her bad if she looked like lowly, i.e. if she was pretty. And I found that such a confounding and horrible but true theme. It's mm-hmm. like our desirability bases how we're treated and our in- extrinsic traits are what prevail over our intrinsic ones. So it's not about you being a good person. As a woman, oftentimes, it's how you present. It's how you look. If you look good, people will treat you good. If you look bad, well, you deserved it. And I found that very confounding, but also very gut-punching, you know, as a woman myself, because it's something we live through. Another theme related that, that, that's throughout the book is these stories of female friendship and those, those bonds, right? What did you want to explore, Taya, about female friendships through, through Loli's eyes, through Loli's experiences? I think I practice friendship with different characters, not just with Jolie, but I think I do, I do see how it can be informing with Lisa Sugar, and I see how it could be wilding with Olivia, and I see how it could be healing with Patty. And I think that that's what I was trying to get at, that there's not one way of understanding relationships, especially when it comes to the woman and the way that it informs you, the way that it governs your decisions and how you see yourself and how it just protects you also from the world. That was really important to me. In the end, Loli returns home to her mother, and then that becomes sort of like the point Right mm-hmm. when we we get to that moment that she's watching her mom and she's considering the fact that her mom had to ha- survive the life that she survived just to arrive here at this scene of tranquility, I really wanted to play with those concepts of what it means to really give yourself to someone and to allow someone to sort of guide you toward the next steps of your life. Uh, so female friendship to me is something that I'm I'm thinking of every single day. There's nothing quite like it, and I will debate anyone who believes otherwise. I I think that that is the real romance. It's always been at least the case for my life, and I would be nowhere in my world if it wasn't for the women who have come into my life at different stages 
and taken over when I couldn't. And I think that that was exactly what I was trying to capture with all these different women that come in and that really make an impact on Loli. It's um, community care. It's uh, generational acceptance. It's To me, it's just everything. That's very profoundly said. I, do you have anything to add to that, Kodakwashi, this idea of what you glean from female fen- friendships in this uh, in this collection of stories? I really, really was drawn to the female friendships because there was something very unique in them in that with her romantic partners who were often men, you know, it was almost exclusively a sexual exchange or an, an external exchange, very little of like emotive depth going on between the two. But then when her, with her friendships with like Patty, with her friendships with even Olivia, which I found very profound, what it was was something more internal, like this desperate bond to be seen and like mm-hmm. this draw to each other and this safety. I think it comes down to Loli feeling safe with the women she was surrounded by. And it's like contrasting the relationships that you see in this book. I think it's an accurate reflection of life because especially her relationships with the women, they're doing things that I think as a girl, you experience your friends do for you. Like going the extra mile. If you're down, they'll cook food for you. If they're at a party and that you call and that you say you're fine, they'll come over and they'll leave the party just to comfort you. And Loli's not finding that with her romantic partner. She's not finding that, that call, that bond with them. But she's finding them in the women who surround her and the women who are picking her up when she can't walk another step and I thought that was beautiful and profound and it drew me to it because I was like that that's how I, I've experienced a lot where it was the women around me who have managed to hold me up when I couldn't and sometimes when I didn't I feel like I didn't deserve to be um, and I was like there's something beautiful in that and like the bond that we women have together it's just like Taya said I don't think it can re- be replicated and I think it's so necessary to have those people and just the way you see it in the book the way Loli depends on you know everyone it's just I think it's profound. Mm. Final question about Loli um, yeah. for you, Kurakwashi. In light of everything that she experiences, the sexual assault that we've alluded to, depression, domestic abuse, suicide, all these, you know, what role do hope and resilience play for Loli? At the end of the day, it's kind of what keeps her going. She experiences all these things and, you know, the first step she takes is to move away from her family home. And, you know, she moves in with a guy who could be said to be her first love quotations in the short story, The Boy from My Youth. And it's like she's chasing this idea of happiness. Like, this is what you're supposed to want. You know, like you clean, you cook, you do everything. And then that's how you can get away from like the sadness and from everything that has happened before. Um, That doesn't work out. And she keeps going. She keeps pushing. She's going through all these different life experiences. And then like Taya said, it's funny how she's moving. She moves away from her home only to end back to it at the end. And, you know, for me, reading that final um, short story, it was just so profound. It's so layered. Like one of the main themes and lines is we buy here. And in that line, it morphs from having the direct meaning of her mom was watching like an infomercial and she was trying to learn English at the same time. And then it morphs to somehow containing every essence of hope we buy here is a testament to perseverance. We buy here, it becomes, you can be in these hard situations and you can just persevere through them because that's what we do. That's what we do. We persevere through them, especially immigrant families, especially refugees. We get put in these situations and then you learn English. You learn to adapt to this land that you're not familiar with. That's what I found was the message of this final chapter. Especially as you read it and you see how repeated those we buy here words are, they really begin to have this desperation, this beautiful fraughtness of like 
hope and we can do this. You go back home and you find what's been pulling you all along. It's the ultimate story and it's the ultimate message. It is a message of hope because we do all this. We go through everything and we persevere. Like we buy here, I guess, for lack of a better word, because I can't say it better than Taya illustrated in the book. Um, and I think that that is the hope. That is the joy. That is that's the beauty, the softness. It's the fact that we do this. We keep doing it and we will continue to do it until just until because we buy here and we will continue to. Canada reads. Um, <laughs> I'm almost reluctant to ask this question because it's so clear what Kudakwashi's passion and connection is for this book and, uh, and, and how articulate and eloquent she is, and maybe she doesn't need the help. But I do want to ask if you have any advice for Kudakwashi uh, that you'd like to pass along about, uh, you know, before the debates happen. Yeah. Advice in terms of being present and okay i'm sorry i'm crying because her answers are just so beautiful so i'm sorry about that well i guess not sorry thank you for that (laughs) um if you can articulate what you've just done here by just being so honest and so present and open about your relationship with the book and how the theme and how the message and how life has allowed you to get here with this book I feel like you'll be just fine you successfully made me cry which I guess is not that hard to do (laughs) Um, but I I think that I think you already have it I think you you care about the book but I think you also care about your experiences as an artist and I think that that really shows in the way that you you uh, articulate your thoughts and your feelings about it well thank you very much Tea and Kurukwashi. Thank you. Thank you. Tea Matonji is the author of Shut Up, You're Pretty, and Kurukwashi Rutendo is an actor. Kurukwashi will champion Shut Up, You're Pretty during this year's Canada Reads. The debates will take place March 4th to the 7th, 2024. Hi, I'm Beverly Glenn Copeland. I'm a composer originally from Philadelphia. But Canada has been my home since I came here to go to McGill University in 1961. I've just finished reading an amazing book, The Nightingale by Kristen Hanna. The Nightingale is a work of historical fiction set in France in 1939. The story follows two sisters who risk their lives to protect their loved ones and their beloved country at the time of the Nazi occupation. It spoke to me about what it means to take risks in the fight for something larger than ourselves. Hannah's writing is superb and her characters leave you wanting more. I'm just about to dig into another book of hers, The Four Winds, set in the time of the Dust Bowl in the US. Hannah is a master storyteller, showing ordinary people in times of crisis who are willing to go out on a limb for other ordinary people without hesitation. Have some tissues handy. We'll be back after these messages. I don't know what's real. I don't know what's not real. Limited Capacity is a collection of six darkly amusing stories about the mysterious ways we interact with the internet and with each other. There's something going on with him. It's like an act. I don't trust him. 
What? You're staring at me like I should say something, but I, I don't really know what to do here. That's the whole name of the game. Don't talk about how the town isn't real. You understand? Limited capacity. Available now on CBC Listen or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, I'm Sheila Hetty, the author of Alphabetical Diaries, and you're listening to the next chapter on CBC Radio 1. I know that when I talked with Ryan B. Patrick last week about his writers to watch for Black History Month, I looked at his past lists, and the poet Kinesia Lubrin was on the 2018 list. And in the six years since then, Kinesia has become an important Canadian literary voice. Ryan, who's here with me in studio right now, spoke with her about her new book, Code Noir. Hello, Ryan. Ali. What's up? I just got to know Kinesia in, in passing as she, she sort of came in and out of the studio. But I do know about her a little bit mm. on paper. And she's certainly lived up to more than that 2018 initial hype or, or promise, if you will. Tell us a little bit about her, her new book. Oh, my gosh. Uh, Kinesia Lubrin is a force. Um, so let me give you a bit of background. She's a writer. She's a critic. She's a uh, professor. Uh, she's originally from St. Lucia. She's now based in Whitby, Ontario. She's this generation's Dion Brand, um, that kind of such eloquent um, way of exploring complex subjects and, and exploring it in such a simple way that laymen such as myself can kind of understand. So it's she's essentially playing chess when other people are playing checkers, to use mm. that, that, that analogy. So talking about the book, she talks about racial oppression, uh, challenging perceptions of black identity. I think that runs large in her, in her work. And that is what looms large in Code Noir. Uh, it's a very experimental novel. It looks at the real-life Code Noir, which was actually a set of historical decrees passed in 1685 by King Louis XIV. And it defined and codified enslavement uh, in the, in the French Empire. So the, this Code Noir had 59 articles, and so does this uh, actual story. It's 59 loosely connected stories that defy time and space and, and looking at what it means to be black in the world. Very interesting. Thanks, Ryan. This is Ryan's conversation with Kinesia Lubrin about Code Noir. Hello, Kinesia. How are you doing? Hello, Ryan. <laughs> Lovely to be here. Thank you for having me. Amazing. So what's amazing about the real-life code noir which inspired this book of the same name is the sheer audacity of it all. It, it casually codifies inhumane treatment, uh, and it defines a group as subhuman, namely black peoples. Tell me more about the, co- the real-life code noir. Well, um, you know, as you've already said, they, these articles are part of the, the grand master narrative of white supremacy, which institutionalized things like the transatlantic slave trade and the many multi-form systems of of global domination, colonialism. And the codes themselves, I'm I'm not a a lawyer or a legal scholar, but what I found interesting in them as as a writer are those various nodes of narrative domination and how they have propagated and evolved even into present day jurisprudence and things like the, the kind of double standards of immigration policies and um, stop and search or stop and frisk or carding. Uh, when, when encountering the codes, I saw that a lot of those ideas are still deeply entrenched 
in our social structures. So you are a writer, you are an award-winning poet. Was there any fear or trepidation in terms of operating as a fiction writer, uh, creating narratives around this real-life code noir? (laughs) No, not at all. (laughs) You know, I've actually been in the quote-unquote house of fiction for a very long time. I actually felt uh, much more comfort with writing prose fiction um, than I did with poetry. And so the, the fact that I published poetry first was a shock to me. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> um, but narrative fiction, you know, the kind of broad canvas that you have to work with um, in terms of character and voice and setting and all of these things, I always felt uh, a great attraction mm. um, and cohabitation, actually. With. So let's talk about these 59 stories. So some stories have a conventional narrative. Others feel more poetic and lyrical. Some are epistolary and mono- monologic in scope. Mm-hmm. Um, how challenging was it playing with form and structures in your fiction debut? <laughs> <laughs> I love the way you stress the word debut there. Um, they were not challenging um, in terms of individual formal mm-hmm. experiments. I tend to gravitate toward the experimental anyway, uh, because I find that my subject always pulls me into trying to find the best measure of expression for the thing or the work. And I almost always find that the conventional modes are not adequate for me. The voices in the text sort of pulled me into this sense of uh, how people tell stories in real life, Mm -hmm. you know? And I think people have many, many different ways of telling stories. You might encounter someone on the street, um, and in just an instant, you get a story, right? And it doesn't have anything to do with the conventional structure that's held up, you know? And so I I find that that sort of interest in wanting uh, a kind of really intimate ear that holds the potential for story to exist in many different modes, Let's talk about the, the, the range here. You, some the fantastical elements, um, some straightforward narratives set in the present day. I think if you subscribe to the notion of what you consume consumes you, mm. um, what fiction works inspired or informed this work? Oh. Um, yeah, that's really interesting. I think sometimes, for me, what could be understood as a kind of inspirational urtext is probably working in these invisible ways. You know, it, it sort of recedes into the the, the unconscious. Um, but there are books and, and writers and traditions that I uh, really gravitate towards. The Latin Americans, for mm-hmm. instance. Um, you know, the way that genre seems to be a secondary concern. And the story is the thing you get. It's like, mm-hmm. what, what do you mean nonfiction or, or poetry or like, yeah, yeah, you know, yeah. sci-fi <laughs> or magical realism? It's like, here's a story. So, like, you know, somebody like Amos Tutuola, My Life in the Bush of Ghosts, you know, all the, the, the usual folks are with me, too. Dion Brand, Tony Morrison, Patrick Chamoiseau, Simone Schwartz-Bart. Mm. That, that lovely book, The Bridge of Beyond, is, is so beautiful. And it's the, really the orality of, say, something like the Caribbean tradition, yeah. where it sort of fractures the solidity mm-hmm. of traditional narrative into these call and response things, a kind of eavesdropping, direct address gossip becomes a thing to tell a story in. That is where uh, the primary mode of something called inspiration 
Um, even though I look at that word with a lot of suspicion. <laughs> That's the primary mode that, you know, it's in that orality of, mm-hmm. of like the black improvisational tradition. Okay. Why do you blanch at that word inspiration? Well, you know, it, it tends to have the kind of mythic presence, you know, of, of oh, I'm, you know, I'm just waiting for a hand of some deity to touch me <laughs> on the forehead and, 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 you know, a light bulb goes off mm. and, and off I go and the universe is, is whispering things into my ear. It, it tends to have that ethos. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and I, uh, I, it just doesn't ring true uh, for me. I think yeah. writing is hard work. You put in a lot of hard work and um, the thing that we call talent that maybe puts you through a door yeah. can become really inert okay. um, outside of the kind of discipline of working hard mm. at, at it. Okay. Um, so you mentioned the Caribbean. Um, the stories are set in the Caribbean. Some stories are set in North America. It's interesting how the impacts of enslavement and colonialism kind of reverberate mm. throughout places and locations and time. And there's one piece where you thrust us to um, the year 3032. It's called Wave Runners. And it's a, a piece essentially about exile and resistance, but it doesn't feel like a future that we'd like to visit. Why did you take readers there? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's interesting because I was having a meal with some friends. You know, sometimes stories come that way. Mm-hmm. And we had a crab appetizer that was served in the shell. That it was a particular kind of crab that, you know, fished out of the Mediterranean. And then we, you know, we, we shared the appetizer and, you know, I'm sort of playing with the shell mm-hmm. You know, yes, I'm an adult. I still play, play with my food. <laughs> I flipped it over and I, you know, I just made like this comment about, yeah, look, look at all of these spikes. You know, I wonder what caused this crab to evolve with that exoskeleton. That should be very menacing. They don't want anybody getting through them and to terrorize them and eat them. And I, you know, I was like, yeah, kind of like black people. Mm. And so I sort of imagined this, a short, really short a microfiction yeah. in which black people have grown exoskeletons after very many years of brutalization. Mm-hmm. Um, and so this story takes place in, this, in the sea, inside a cave, where we have this sort of improbable premise of, of a black person jumping into the ocean um, and then finding themselves in a cave. And so begins this process of evolution. Yeah. Um, and you, you have the tides and the moon and, and the sea working them um, mm. into this sort of physiological, physically, to evolve into a, a kind of physique that resists bodily injury. Yeah. Um, it's not necessarily that I want readers to enter that future. This is a kind of jump-off point. Yeah. That one story that says, listen, we, we tried everything. We read all the greats. We had all of the narratives. Um, we had all of the art. We had all of the genius. And still, um, we had to grow this non-human form. Yeah, nice. So there's another piece that I loved. It's called A Calypsonian Sings of Seven Decades. And uh-huh. It's a short piece that includes like song structure and lyrics sung by a woman named Singing Sonia. How much fun was it kind of like flexing your literary <laughs> <laughs> muscles here? You know, you know, the Caribbean tradition of the calypso mm. did come out of resistance to colonial domination. Uh, it was one of the ways that stories were told and mm. that social critique happened. Yeah. And uh, like I was saying earlier, this is one of the ways that people tell stories. Yeah. You know, and I think Calypsonians are among the most adept of our storytellers in the world. When you get a good Calypso, you get a good <laughs> Calypso. Yes. I mean, you, it clarifies the world. It, it yeah. does a lot of things. 
And so Singing Sonia is actually, is actually a, a Caribbean Calypsonian, here fictionalized. Mm. And because I'm a poet, and I have you know, a great affinity with, with music, I play some instruments, you know, I like to sing. Um, I didn't know that. Yeah. So, <laughs> so, so songwriting is where, talents. yeah, <laughs> uh, don't take me to the bank, but it, yes, I enjoy doing all of those things. Um, but I just really wanted to have a Calypsonian in the book telling a story that I thought I wanted to, to have a, a kind of presence in the book. Speaking of presence, um, can we talk about the lovely visual art by Tokwaze Dyson, um, the American artist who provided illustrations for this book? Um, talk about that. How do they illuminate the work? What are they and how do they illuminate this work? Yeah, so I wanted to disturb the presence of King Louis's articles hmm. in the book. I did not want them to have the kind of legibility that would foreground their presence, their logic, um, they're illogic. A lot of them make no sense. Yeah. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and, they're, and they're very repetitive, yeah. you know, because they're dealing with things like, um, you know, the family structure, um, you know, the, how the condition of the slave is passed on. You know, how do you punish whomever <laughs> if they step out of line? If you find the slave somewhere, you know, who doesn't have the branding of its master, you got to capture them and take them to the hospital and, 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 and let them wait there until somebody claims them, you know, things like that. They're disgusting, uh, and I didn't. <laughs> true, true I did story. Not, <laughs> I did not want to have them be too legible uh, and too logic forward, and it's really in having a conversation with Torquase, who's an absolutely phenomenal visual artist and a profound thinker. She and I had a very brief conversation, and then she went away and came back with these really beautiful drawings that give a kind of vernacular of the defiant presence of blackness in the world. And I thought they sort of doubled the meaning of the stories and they're working in these ways that provide a kind of visual, emotional resonance yeah. to what is happening in the stories. And I really didn't have to tell Torquase that, you know, she just got it, nice. you know, and she came back with these really fabulous stories in visual form that complement what is happening in the book. So it's working in juxtaposition, in contrast to the kind of self-professed authority yeah. of the codes. Okay. It, it, it's working in defiance of that. Uh, and, and the fact that you have m something that would have left a lot of white space on the page mm -hmm. is suddenly crowded in with all that black. And, and this, these sort of geometric <laughs> modes, you mm -hmm. know, that sort of um, suffocate the codes, yeah. really. Yeah. Uh, and, and make them less legible than they would otherwise be. So the Code Noir was obviously a brutal law, but it also created a sense of community and resistance among both enslaved and free black people across the French colonial empire. How does resistance inform this book? Um, well, I mean, in addition to what I've said, you know, in terms of the drawings, in terms of the, uh, the mode of storytelling, which disrupts linear narrative and the, the kind of authority, the master narrative, really, in, in the code that says, you know, th these people are human. And then, you know, if you're black, you're, you're not your property. There's no way that people simply accept that. Forms of resistance uh, happen in small ways and in large ways, right? And I wanted for this book to really engage the, the smallness that is in tandem, that is happening in parallel to the large-scale 
forms of liberation that we often know, like you know the protest and the, you know the kind of organizing that puts systemic pressure on the ways of the world, uh, and that leads to something like the abolition of slavery, uh, for instance. So what what I really wanted was to lean into the authority of of, of the kinds of of life making where the law cannot actually have an effect. Yeah. Right. Mm. It's in those small shared interpersonal um, spaces where where story happens in a manageable way that that's say someone like a fiction writer can come and say, all right, I can dramatize this thing. Yeah. Right. Um, And the way that we pass stories on to one another through songs, through letters, through gossip, through codifying in different ways, Mm. the cipher, the Negro spiritual. Right. The way that these things move and are porous. That is the kind of structure of resistance that I that I wanted the stories to exist in. Kinesia, thank you. Thank you, Ryan. It's a pleasure talking to you. That was our contributor, Ryan B. Patrick, in conversation with Kinesia Lubrin about her book, Code Noir. Ashley July is a wizard on many platforms at CBC Books. He knows the authors to watch, he creates reading lists, and he does interviews, and he's a talented visual producer. Ashley has always been interested in the visual, and he takes that interest into his reading life. He's a fan of comics and graphic novels and memoirs. Today, Ashley is here to tell us about three books he recommends that marry words and pictures. Ashley, welcome to the next chapter. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Welcome into the lion's den, as we (laughs) call it here. That's not what we call it at all. Let's start by talking about this interest in books with a visual element that you have. How did that start for you? Um, I've just always been interested in, in sort of the power of images. I think that, yeah, comic books, the way that they put together the visual and the written, yeah, they just always have stuck out to me and sort of been some of the, the most important, impactful stories that I've read in my life have been comic books. So these have been with you since you were uh, yeah. a, a young person? Since, since I was a kid, yeah. And what were the favorites from that time? I guess I got I got to give a shout out to the Barber from Library. Uh, that's where I used to go as a kid and read uh, comic books after school. Um, and mostly it was Spider-Man. I really got into Spider-Man. A lot of X-Men comics, X-Factor, X-Men, and Silver Surfer, just with sort of those heavy kind of existential questions really is the stuff that I lean towards. So yeah, those are kind of, kind of my favorites. What kind of things do you look for in a, in a graphic novel or a comic? I think, like I said, mostly those powerful images that sort of stick with you kind of tell the story in ways that words can't, but then also those powerful stories that come together with the the images. So when those two things work together, I think that that's when you get like the best, the most impactful stories is when you have those two elements of the visual and great storytelling through the words as well. Mm -hmm. Let's turn to your list. What's the first book that you want to talk about today? So yeah, the first one is Godhead 2 by Hoche Anderson. Okay. What world do we enter in Godhead 2? You have to forgive me. I've never heard of this. Okay, yeah. So it is the uh, follow-up to Godhead 1, which is this graphic novel about this sort of near-future time where this evil corporation has built a machine that allows people to communicate with God. 
So you could imagine all of the sort of social and kind of religious implications mm-hmm. that has. And then there is this mercenary named Racer Calhoun, who's part of a team that's been uh, contracted by the Vatican to destroy the machine. Of course, because they have their own kind of conflict of interest. They want to be the only sort of channel to God. <laughs> they don't want to give that power to anyone else. So they hire this team to destroy the, the machine. Yeah, it's just this really good sort of combination of like espionage, lots of action, explosions, killer robots, basically like an 80s sci-fi movie uh, on the page. So it's an adventure story uh, melded with a story that asks profound questions related to, you know, religion, science, I imagine. How does that mix work for you? It's really good. I think, uh, like I said, the images in this book are this sort of neo-noir kind of really high contrast, dark images that really support that idea of the the religious kind of implications and big questions that the the book does ask. And then all the action and the the sort of killer robot stuff kind of raises the level. It gives you a break from those heavy questions. Mm -hmm. So it's like those things. And then it goes straight into like an action scene, a gunfight and a car chase. And then it comes back and sort of deals with the aftermath of that stuff. So, yeah, it really works well. Okay. Tell me about the next book on your list. Um, The next one is Are You Willing to Die for the Cause by Chris Oliveros. All right. Tell me a little bit about the world that this book takes you into. So this one is interesting because it's a sort of historical nonfiction graphic novel. And it tells the story of like the FLQ in the the 1960s uh, in Quebec and kind of sort of the things that were going on at that time. It's fun because it's based on a fictional, a long lost fictional CBC documentary. And so (laughs) in the book, it's these firsthand accounts of people who were involved in the movement or around it or around that time. And so it's like presented as a documentary style. So you get these interviews and you can see how everyone has a different memory of things that happened. And it's based on historical facts, but it plays with them in these kind of fun and interesting ways. And there's like a, an appendix at the back of the book that uh, gives more context and a lot more of the the um, research that went into the book. So it's based on real facts, but it's also based on this fictional uncovered CBC documentary on that period in Quebec's history. That's interesting. So this book could, if I'm not mistaken, it could actually introduce people to a a new audience. Many people would not know anything about this FLQ crisis. So you could have this um, chapter of Canadian history that's introduced to uh, a whole new audience. Did you learn some things from it as well? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I learned a lot from it. And that was kind of one of the things that, that kind of drew me to it is sort of these stories about this I guess, revolutionary kind of movement that was going on in Quebec at the time. It has sort of um, parallels to like the Black Panther Party in the in the States uh, around that same time in the 60s, but based on the same kind of Marxist ideals. And yeah, it was a very eye-opening thing for me just to see these teenagers, I guess, essentially be radicalized and go on this violent, I guess... Yeah, they went about their their revolution in kind of a violent way and like people died. And these are things that I have heard about, but not really known some of the details of of these stories. It's very interesting. I'll definitely read this book. As a young man, I dreamt of being part of a revolution. That was something that I really (laughs) wanted to do. I've calmed down since. But uh, are you willing to die for the cause? I will check that out. And uh, what's the final book that you want to recommend? 
So I would be remiss if I didn't include a Spider-Man book on Back my... Back to your roots. <laughs> yeah. Back to your roots. On my graphic novel column. So uh, the next one is Ultimate Spider-Man number one by Jonathan Hickman. So what makes this the ultimate Spider-Man? Um, well, it's interesting because it takes place in an alternate universe. So not the main Marvel uh, 616 continuity. It's in a different... Uh, ult- the ultimate universe and... Um, yeah, it sort of plays with certain things in the story that uh, are different from the main universe. Tell me what that means, the uh, 616 universe. So the 616 is the name that's given to the main Marvel universe. So all of the canon that people are used to of the main uh, history of Marvel publishing, it all falls under the 616. And then there's Elseworld stories or what-if stories that take place in other universes. And so this story takes place in one of those other universes. Contemporary day, 2024, yeah. but in a different universe. Yeah, so who, different is, universe. who is Peter Parker and who is Spider-Man in this world? So the funny thing about this is that the first issue starts, there is no Spider-Man. In the history of this world, there's a, a villain whose name is the Maker. He goes back in time and erases all of the hero's origin stories so that he can take over the world easier. So that he doesn't have any opposition. So Peter Parker is mid-30s, family man, has two kids. He's married to Mary Jane. Uncle Ben is still alive. So his life hasn't been defined by tragedy the way that main universe Peter Parker is. Mm. And, yeah, he sort of is going through his life and feeling like something's missing, feeling like there's a part of him that he's not exercising. And then he gets this... Uh, an orb delivered to him that has a message in it from Tony Stark that tells him that he is supposed to be Spider-Man. And so it goes on this journey of him actually getting bitten by the radioactive spider and then starting his career. You put this on your list, so I assume it lives up to the term ultimate Spider-Man? <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's really good. Um, it's a, Like I said, it's a different take on the story that's more contemporary, and again, it takes Peter Parker away from being this angsty teenager to, like, I guess an angsty man. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, but yeah, he's just sort of trying to find his way through his life, and I kind of related to it as a, a mid-30s man myself, sometimes feeling like there's more out there, that there's maybe a, a life that you're missing out on, or that you didn't get a chance to live, or that you still could and you just have to maybe open your eyes to see what the options are. But yeah, just I kind of related to it in that way of just feeling like there might be more for me that I, I, I want to explore. For now, Ashley, you are a CBC producer. And <laughs> yes. we thank you for your work. Your joy today was palpable. And until he clearly moves on to some other universe... Uh, We appreciate his work. Thanks, Ashley. Thank you for having me. Ashley July is a producer at CBC Books, and he's a lover of graphic novels and books. The titles he talked about today are on our website, cbc.ca slash the next chapter. That is it for our show today. Jacqueline Kirk is our senior producer with Lisa Matthews. My thanks this week to Emily Carvacio, Trevor Carter, and to the CBC Books digital team. Coming up next week, friends and co-authors Kate Quinn and Janie Chang. The two historical fiction novelists have combined their talent and their interests to write The Phoenix Crown. It's a fast-paced, rollicking read set in the days before and after the San Francisco earthquake of 1906. And the sports journalist Morgan Campbell will be here to talk about his book, My Fighting Family. I'm Ali Hassan. Thanks for listening to the next chapter.
For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.